Well, let's jump in. Uh, if you got your, your Bible with you, uh, if you have your phone, your tablet, whatever you use to uh, access the Word of God, I want to again remind you we are in John chapter 14, verse 6. You can see behind me, we've spent the last several weeks just in this one verse looking at what Jesus said, a very profound statement uh, that is not only uh, impacting people uh, who are struggling with Christianity, but is to impact us who have called upon the name of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Uh, the context is Jesus is preparing his disciples, his followers, for the day where he will no longer physically be with them. And he's telling them that I'm getting ready to go, but I'm going to go prepare a place for you and, and trying to reassure them that they're not to worry about where he is going because they know the way. And in a moment of panic, Thomas says, Lord, where, where are you going? And how do we know the way if we don't even know where that is? And Jesus' response is verse 6 of John chapter 14 where he says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And we started several weeks just going through each one of these. What is the way? What is the truth? And today we'll be focused on what is the life. And when Jesus said he was the way, he meant he was the only way to the Father. He meant that it is through him because of his sacrifice and what we've been singing about on the cross that Jesus lived the life that we could not on our best day and our best moment. And he died for our sins on a cross. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. They placed him in a tomb, but praise the Lord, he came out three days later that we may be completely forgiven. And because Jesus Christ did that, because the followers witnessed it and testified to it, because we are now uh, the representation of the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Jesus can say, I am the only way to the Father. No other religious leader can do what I have done for you because God loves you. Not only was he saying that he's the only way to the Father, but he was telling his people and he's telling us today that he is the way in which we now should be modeling our life. Scripture says we should have the mind of Christ. We should have the attitude of Christ. We should walk as Christ walked, and we should keep in step with the Spirit. And that is the way we now are called to live as Christians, as God's children here on this earth, so much that when people look at the way we live our life, they can see that that way is different than the ways of the world, and they want to know what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ as well. We then turned our attention to the truth. And when Jesus said he was the truth, he was not saying a relative truth, meaning what works for you may not work for me. He was saying, I am the absolute truth. I am the truth for all people at all times and all places. I am the truth and nothing but the truth. And so we as God's people, we look to Jesus to see through the eyes of God on how we should view this world through the eyes of truth. And even though we may not like what we always hear or read in Scripture, because let's be honest, sometimes truth is hard to swallow, isn't it? And, and that's, that makes it truth. is because it's hard to swallow, but we know it's true. And there's things in Scripture, I'll be honest, that it's hard to swallow. Why God wants me to do that. Why I should be living a certain way. Why I should be acting a certain way. Why I should not be doing certain things. But if it's truth, then there's no bargaining. It's either truth or it's not truth. And so we have to make a personal decision that I believe this is the absolute truth for my life and I should be modeling my life after this truth. Meaning in church life and as a life as a Christian, there's no room for a saying as well, that may be the way you read it, but that's not the way I read it. See, the Bible holds no contradictions. There are no multiple interpretations for a passage of Scripture. There may be multiple applications, but not multiple interpretations. So if someone were to say, well, that's the way you read it, but that's not the way I read it, here's what you can understand. The truth is somebody's reading it wrong. That's the truth. 
And so Jesus says, I am the truth. And if you want to know truth, don't look to the world. You need to look to me and the way I'm living my life. And, and then today we're going to turn our attention to that final statement that I am the life. Again, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the what? Oh, you got cliff notes. Come on. I am the? I am the? I am the? No one comes to the? Except through? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Reveal this to us. Allow your spirit just to move in this place as it has been moving already. Thank you for allowing us to come into your presence and to the throne room of grace because we have access through your son. Thank you, Lord, for giving us truth, even though it may be hard to swallow. Thank you for showing us the way we should be living our life. Thank you for, for giving us this life and giving us a new life in you. And Father, again, I pray for all of us in this place as your children that you would just prepare our hearts for what you want to say to us this morning. Lord, reveal to us truth. Father, forgive us those times where we have taken truth from the world or truth from people and we have, we have believed that to be absolute. Show us today, Lord, how we should be modeling our life after you and what this means and how we should apply it. And Father, I pray for the individual or individuals here who, who have yet to accept you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, it is by your work and by your will and by your spirit that this can happen. There's nothing I can do. So I humbly submit to your work to be done in their life that today would be the day of their salvation. Thank you for your word. Open it up as you did with your followers through the power of your spirit that we may understand it, we may apply it, and we may live it. Don't let us just be hearers today, Lord, but let us be doers. Thank you for everything you're doing in our life. And pray us all in your son's name. Amen. Jesus said, I am the life. In May of 2000, uh, the rock band Bon Jovi, you want to call him a rock band. Do you call Bon Jovi a rock band? Some say no, some say who's my, oh, well, they released a song called It's My Life, and, it, and for the summer of 2000, it became an anthem. And if you're not familiar with the song, the chorus is, it's my life, it's now or never, I ain't going to live forever, so I'm going to live while I'm alive, it's my life. And if you're not familiar with that one, you may be familiar with an older song by a much more uh, solidified artist, and that is by the, a guy by the name of Frank Sinatra. And he wrote a song and sang a song called My Way, which said, I'm going to do it my way. Funny enough, Bon Jovi's song wasn't strong enough because he had to mention Frank Sinatra in his own song because he says, I'm going to do it like Frankie. I'm going to do it my way. The problem with It's My Life and My Way, even though a lot of people have come to believe, you know, this is how you should live life. It is your life. You define your life. You do what you should do with your life, and you should live your life to the fullest, and, 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 and no one should tell you what to do. The problem with that is there are so many false truths in that. They're not even truth. They're, they're just lies. See, it's not our life. But we get told from a very young age, especially here in America, that it's your life. You should live your life how you want to live it. You should live your life to the, to the fullest, and it's your life. Why should you care what anyone else thinks as long as you are enjoying your life? But there's no truth in that. Bon Jovi's song became an anthem. It became a belief system because that's what it is. And matter of fact, there are a lot of churches in America today that actually preach that belief system. You should live your best life now. You should live your life to the fullest. And what the, what's the problem with that? Who's the center of the attention? You are. But that's the way we seem to bring our children up. When our kids are young, we ask them questions like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and we've done that with our own kids, so it's not a bad question. We've, we've learned in the last couple of years we need to rephrase the question. What do you think God wants you to be? See, 
Abby, she'll tell me that she's going to be an artist and she's going to live on the beach and she's going to do well. And Ethan, he says he's going to be a zoologist, zoologist a marine biologist to be in, uh, in particular. And, and so Abby got excited when he said he's going to be a marine biologist and she's going to live on the beach. And she told Ethan, well, we can just live together. And Ethan said no. <laughs> but he should not be offended at that because I asked Abby if mommy and daddy can come and visit her. And she said, well, yeah, you can visit, but you can't stay. And so there's very few people, but she has her life planned out and what she wants to be. When we get into high school, some of y'all are in high school right now, or maybe you just graduated high school, and the question was asked, so what are you going to do now after high school? What are you going to, where are you going to go to college? What are you going to study? Are you going to go into the service? Basically, what are you going to do with your life? And then that question changes when you get near the end of high school or you become an official adult and someone just drops the bomb, so what are you going to do with your life? And so we are always fascinated with this idea of life and how are we going to define it but the issue is when we try to define our life by the mantra that you know it is my life we're going to ruin it and I want you to see the the problems with these statements it's my life I'm going to live how I want to live it and there are individuals perhaps in this room there are individuals that you definitely know that live that sort of life it's my life. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to live how I want to do it. I want to enjoy life to the fullest, so it's mine. But the problem with that is, think about life in general. For us to say it's my life and I'm going to live my life how I want to do it, does anybody actually get to do that? Let's just, let's just put it in the realms of having to buy something. Say you need to buy a car, but you don't have the means to buy a car, so you have options. One of the options is you can begin to make sacrifices so you can ultimately buy this car that you want. But the problem is sacrifice implies that you are going to have to give something up. So you obviously aren't living the way you want to live at that particular moment in time. In other ways, you can, you can go out and do some illogical things. You can go steal a car. You can go take something that's not yours. And if you get caught, what's the problem with that? They're going to put you in a place that you don't want to be, which is not the way you want to live your life at that particular moment in time. Another option that people seem to do is they take credit. They go get a loan. The thing with a loan is you have to pay it back, right? Because it's not technically yours until you have made that balance zero. And so if you don't pay the loan, then the bank will come and take the car, so you're not going to live your life the way you want to. If you do take a loan or put on some sort of credit, you're going to have to make sacrifices in order to adjust to that payment. So guess what? You're not living your life the way you want to live it at that particular moment in time. You see, there are so, when we say it's my life, I want to live it the way I want to live it, there's so many problems with that because throughout our entire life, we have people coming in our life telling us, this is how you should live your life. Parents, do you tell your kids how they should live their life or do you just let them run amok? Exactly. So since a kid, we've had someone, an adult figure in our life saying, this is what you have to do. You have to clean your room. You have to stop hitting your sister. You have to do this and do that. I mean, we tell, we are told as we get older and we get into high school and we go into sports or some sort of extracurricular activity. There are teachers and instructors and coaches that are coming into our life. And what are they doing? They're telling us what we have to do. So if we said to our coach or our teacher or PE instructor, or even to an adult, well, it's my life, I'm going to do what I want, what's going to happen? You can take that attitude out the door. As we become an adult, 
If we were to live by the mantra, it's my life, I'm going to live the way I want to, there's a little thing called the LAW law that would come into play and say, you know what, you can't do that. But if you look at the news, people who are living this sort of way of life is causing so much disorder in life. We've seen riots, we're seeing people protesting about some of the most illogical things because they say, it's my life, I want to live it the way I want to live it, I'm going to define my life. You see, that, that statement is a, a statement that I have the power. I am in control. Maybe you're not going that far, but you say, you know, it's my life, so you can't tell me what to do. But again, we see that through our entire life. We are raised by people telling us what to do or not to do. Maybe you say, well, it's my life. Why should you care? Why should you care what I do with my life? The reality is we want people to care. We want friends. We, we, We get social groups because we want people in our life to care. As kids, we want parents or the adult figures in our life to care. As adults, when we get older, you know what we're going to want? We're going to want our kids to care. So the moments and times when we can't take care of ourselves, guess who would? Those who care about us. See, we, we can't say, why should you care? Because we are built with this thing inside of us that we want people to care about us. We want to be a part of something. And so the Bible tells us that when we try to define our life, we're going to mess it up. Rick Warren writes in his book, 40 Days of Purpose, that you're going to live for something. And whatever that something is, that's going to be the Lord of your life. What that means is if if you don't live your life for Jesus, you're going to find something in your life to live for. That's going to be your pursuit. That's going to be your purpose. That's how you're going to define your life. And so many people try to define their life by, you know, I'm going to be a good person or I'm going to just do, you know, enough good stuff and I'm going to work hard or, or I'm going to be this. If you have your Bibles, go with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. See, when Jesus said he is the life, he, meant to sh- he is saying that he is the life that we all desire. He is the life we want to live and he is the life giver that we need so desperately And in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19, we're given this interaction with Jesus and a man that's known as the rich young ruler. And beginning in verse 16 of that chapter, it says, Just then someone came up and asked him, and him is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Verse 17, Why do you ask about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter eternal life, then keep the commandments. And he responds, which one? And Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, I have kept all of these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? Whether or not this man kept the laws, that's really not the issue because Jesus doesn't even address the issue of him saying all these laws that he kept. And Jesus was not saying, you know, this is what you need to do in order to have eternal life. Jesus is trying to get to the heart of the matter of this person. He knows where this man is coming from. He knows the sort of life this man is living. He he, he knows who he is personally. If we were to run into this particular individual, this rich young ruler who, who's asking Jesus, what should I do? What, what, should I, what is good? And, and, and what is the standard of what God wants? And, and, and he lived out these things. You know, he didn't commit adultery. He didn't steal. He didn't lie. He honored his father and mother. He, he, he loved people that God brought into his life. If we ran into this person, you know what we would immediately come to the, the assessment of? This is a good person. 
This person lives a good life. There's no way this person is not going to heaven. But as the man confesses, you know, I've done all these things. His question is, there's something inside of me that is still off. I'm doing all this work, all this good stuff. I'm living a life that I believe I'm supposed to be living, but something in me is missing. He asked Jesus, what am I lacking? I'm trying to do all this stuff, but I still feel like I haven't got it there. I'm not where God wants me to be. And so Jesus states this very simple truth that we can all learn and we need to live by is that throughout our life, no matter how good we are, no matter how hard we work, no matter what sort of reputation we have in life, we all struggle with the same thing that this good person is struggling with, and that is sin. See, this person was, was doing all these things, but the sin in his life created this hole in his heart that only God could fill. But he was trying to fill it by being a good person, by doing all the works, all the things that he thought, well, this is my rules and my list of righteousness. If I just do these things, then I'll feel complete. But the reality is he comes to Jesus and says, I just don't get it. I, I, I feel lacking. I feel like something is missing. And so Jesus tells him in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, go sell your belongings and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And Jesus isn't giving this man, okay, you did all these great rules and here's one more I'm going to put on you. What he's doing, he's getting to the heart of this person. See, this, this, this man was living a good life, but the reality is he had these possessions and these treasures that he was holding on to. And so Jesus says, you know, you need to let this go. If you truly want to follow me, if you truly want security of salvation, then I have to be the Lord of your life. But you've got these issues, and this is your sin problem. This is why you have this sense of lacking. Barbara Taylor writes in a book called Language of Salvation that the essence of sin is not primarily the violation of laws, but it is a wrecked relationship with God and with one another and the whole created order. All our attempts, all sin, are attempts to fill a void because we cannot stand the God-shaped hole inside of us. We try stuffing it with all sorts of things, but only God can fill it. Timothy Keller goes on to write about sin as the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in the relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to get an identity apart from Him. Basically, it's, so what are you going to do with your life? Everyone gets their identity, their sense of being distinct and valuable from somewhere or something. The primary way to define sin is not just the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship with God. See, this man had a sin problem. He had been doing all these things but what he came to realize and what we need to realize is that a life not centered on God is an empty life. It is a life of constant struggle, constant lacking, a constant wanting. And this man was doing very good things at being religious. But what Jesus Christ came to do is to give a relationship. And there's two differences. A lot of people struggle with Christianity is because they don't see the difference between a religion and relationship. 
Religion is man's attempt to make his way back to God. If you read from Genesis to Revelation, you find that is what man is constantly trying to do. It can't be just by Christ alone. Paul deals with it numerous times throughout his letters in man trying to work his way back to God, trying to do something to prove that he is worthy of salvation. That's religion. Jesus Christ didn't come to offer religion. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with God built upon a faith that God loves me so much that he sent his only son to die for me. And by my faith in the work of Christ and that he finished it, I can be saved and I can be given a new life in him. When Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, he's hitting at the core of what this man is trying to do. He's trying to be perfect outside of God. He's trying to do it himself. And a lot of people are going to come before God one day and they're going to say, God, look at this life I lived. It was such a good life. And God's going to look at them and say, you know what? I'm the only one who's good. So you must have thought you were God of yourself. Some people are going to stand before God and say, God, well, you gave me this life and I lived it to the fullest. I lived my life the way I should, should want to live my life. And God's going to look at them and say, that's, that's great. I'm glad you enjoyed life. But you needed me in your life. Your God was you. Some people are going to come before God and say, God, look at all this stuff I did for you. Look at all this stuff, this work I did, and, and look at everything I accomplished. And God's going to look at them and say, why did you work so hard when my son already did the work for you? And some people are going to come before God one day, and they're just going to fall down on their knees, just in awe of his glory, and just be thankful. And God's going to look at them and say, welcome home. You see, God wants our life to be focused and centered on Him, and we try to fill the hole that sin puts in our hearts. And we all have a sin problem, okay? And we try to fit things in that hole that only God can fill. We go to the trap that Satan brings to all of us, that he tries to steal, kill, kill and destroy our life. Jesus said in John chapter 10, as He's giving His disciples the warning about the thief stealing and killing and destroying, but he says that I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. But we are all wrestling with this of selling ourselves out and, and allowing Satan to kill this abundant life that Jesus promised. This truth, this, this joy that cannot be given by the world and it can't be taken by the world. It's a joy inside of us because it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not relying upon circumstances. This is the life God wants to give us. But you know who we are? We, we struggle with that because we still want to think we're in control. We've got the power that, you know what, if I, if I surrender, if I completely surrender my, my, my life to Christ, what is he going to do with it? And Jesus, throughout his, his ministry, keeps telling him, come to give you life. I've come to give you joy and joy complete and joy that's abundant. But it does begin in surrender. I've come to the conclusion there's four ways we'll define our life. You're going to live to die. You're going to live to work your way into eternity. You're going to live in hopes that you're good enough or you're going to live this life for the kingdom of God. If you're going to live to die, that's a mantra called carpe diem, right? Seize the day. I'm going to live this day to the fullest. I'm going to live this life out to the fullest. But the reality that we all have to face, and however we are defining our life, the way we're going to live it, is one day we all were born, and one day we all will die. 
unless Jesus Christ comes back before that time. And so if, if my mantra or my definition of life is carpe diem, I'm going to seize the day, I'm going to live every day to the fullest, that's great, God created you to enjoy life, He wants you to enjoy this life, He created life, He's the God of life, He wants us to live it, yes, but the focus of that is I'm going to enjoy this day and this, this day to the fullest and I'm going to live it out to the fullest. And, and the reality of carpe diem is it does not look to eternity. Carpe diem is eternity's not even in the mix. It's that I'm going to live this day because one day I'm going to die and that's it. Now, I don't know about you, but if that's life and that's how you define life, how depressing is that? I'm going to live this day, and this may be my last day on earth because tomorrow I die, and I'm going to be put in a grave, and what they're going to define my life by is a little dash on a tombstone. How depressing is that? Where Scripture tells us, yes, we should live this day and, and remain focused on this day because tomorrow has enough troubles of its own, and so we live in this day, but we live in this day with the focus of eternity. He's returning. He's preparing a place. This is what he says in John 14, 6. He's preparing his disciples for eternity. So as God's people, we aren't living just in this day, but we're living in view of eternity. That Jesus is coming back. And so when he comes back, we want to make sure that we're bringing as many people with us into the kingdom of God. The other ways that you live your way to work in eternity, we talked about that in the last several weeks. What, what qualifies as enough work to receive salvation? What's the qualification? Is it 40 plus hours your entire life? Is it making sure you take no sick days? Does it require overtime? Do, do, if we miss a day, does, does part of that work day get carried over? Do we get like credit? And the same thing goes with, oh, I'm going to live my life to be good enough. But then what, what defines good? Because what's good for me may not be good for you. It's a relative. And, and who does it define good? Is it, is it good for all people, or is it good just for my family? Is it good just for, for me in that moment? But if I'm not good 24-7, again, do I get credit? Does my really good day come on to my really bad day? And, and so it covers that. The issue with this is we're relying upon ourselves. We're defining what we want to define as life. When God gives us his word and says, this is life, and I am the life. This is why you should follow me. This is why you should trust me, because I give life. And I promise eternal life. And so reality, the only way we should be living our life right now is we live our life for the kingdom of God. That our entire life is about putting God on display. It's about bringing God glory. It's about letting people know that there is a God and He does love you and He is for you. Jesus defined a life worth living in the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. In verse 34 through 37, Jesus says, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life, because, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet, let, yet lose his life? And what can anyone give in exchange for his life? What can you give in exchange for your soul? This is why Jesus came. He came because there is a gap between us and God, and if that gap is not filled, we will be eternally separated from God forever. 
and this life will be the only life we can enjoy. That's the reality of Scripture. But Jesus says, I am the life because I want to give life. But what gives God the right to define life? Well, we go to Genesis chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The statement that God created all life. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Look, if you and I could create our own universe outside of a Sims game or a computer game, then we could get to define life. But since none of us have that capability, the one who gets to define life is the one who created life. Because he knows how life is meant to be lived. He knows how life is meant to be enjoyed. And he knows how we can live this life with joy and peace in our hearts. This is the life book. And I understand there's things in this book that are confusing. I understand there's things in this book that don't always make sense. And and we don't quite get our head around all, all the time. I understand there's things in this book that are hard to swallow. But the reality is God gave us his word so that we would have the breath of life pouring into us so the breath of life could be coming out of us. That's why Jesus says, I am the life. Because I came to lay down my life so that you may have life. And without, a life without Jesus Christ is a life that is lost. And the believers and followers of Christ understood this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, the scripture says that, For you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, the word of the Lord says, <clears throat> excuse me, for he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a freeman is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. So how do we receive this life that we all long for? Well, the Bible tells us because it's the book of life. In Romans chapter 6, in verse 17, it says, but thank God... Although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you have become enslaved to righteousness. Jumping to verse 22 of the same chapter. But now since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification or, or being set apart. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, because it is only through him which we may have the, the forgiveness of our sins. But when we come to Christ, we come confessing him as Lord and Savior. That means master and savior. That means we are now slaves to God. He has bought us at, his, at a price and we're slaves to God, meaning he's in control of our life now. We hand over the keys. We say, God, this is your word. This is what it says and I'm going to live in your word. Now, the, Here's the problem we all have. We still have a sin issue. And because we still have a sin issue, we can relate to what Paul says in Romans 8, that I do the things I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. And I don't understand it, except it's the sin within me. It's not that new life I've been given. It's a sin within me. For the rest of our days, we are constantly going to have a sin problem and a sin battle until we are in eternal life with God, and that is taken away. But what Satan wants to do is he wants to zap your life. He wants to remind you of the regrets and the things you've done and, and make you feel like, oh, I'm a worthless person. I'm so horrible. 
That's the stealing. That's the killing and destroying of life that you've been given. And so we look at Satan and we say, we speak the truth of God's word. And we say, I know I have fallen short, but I also know I am forgiven by grace. Because Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Jesus paved the way to the Father so we could have life. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 22 and 25, through 25, it says, He, being Jesus, did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live. And what are we living for? Not for my life, not for what I want to do, but we are living for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As we've gone through this series, here is the cap end of it. And again, comes from a book by a man by the name of Timothy Keller, The Reason for God. If, if you're a reader, I recommend it. And here's what he says. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching but whether or not he rose from the dead. And this is how the first hearers felt when, when they heard the reports of his resurrection. They knew that if it was true, it meant we can't live our lives any way we want. It also meant we don't have to be afraid of anything. Not Roman swords, not cancer, nothing. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. question today is, by the way we're living our life, is that what people see? That Jesus rose from the grave and we're living our life in the way, the truth, and the life. Is that what's defining the way we live our life right now? God blesses this sort of lifestyle. Maybe you're here this morning and the question for you is, have you accepted Jesus? Let me go back to that depressing thought. We all, we all were born, and we all were, will die. And we don't get to decide that, right? We've got no saying that. It can happen at any point in time. And people are going to write obituaries about us, how we define our life, how we lived our life. And they're going to give us a nice little stone, and it's going to be summarized in one little dash. If that dash does not represent Jesus Christ, that dash is not actually a cross in your life, that you've come to the cross and accepted the way, the truth, and the life, then when this life is over, the Bible speaks the truth, not to scare you, but to give you the truth that you are going to hell. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and pain and torment that will never end until God finishes it once and for all. But because God loves you, and because God created life, and He knows that sin in your life is separating you from God, he sent His only Son to live a life that you and I couldn't. He died a death that we couldn't. He rose again that we never will. So that we might be completely forgiven, not by anything we can do to say, look God, look what I did. Look how hard I worked. Look how good of a person I am. Look how many times I went to church. It is only by a faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is believing in my heart God loves me that much. And confessing with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and Savior. The Bible says when I do that, I will be saved. 
I will be saved from eternal damnation and condemnation, and I will be given eternal life. If you're here this morning, there's, there's no reality of when this life is going to be over for you. But right now, God is extending an invitation that you can make sure that this life isn't it, that there is eternal life. And I'm going to be standing down here as the worship team comes on up. And if you need to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, I'm going to invite you to just come on down and say, Pastor Mike, I want Jesus in my life. I'm surrendering my life to the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe you're here this morning and you know you have not been living such a way that shines who Jesus is. And that needs to change. That's not saying you're going to be perfect. You're never going to be perfect. Only God is perfect. Only God is good. But it does mean that you realize that the Holy Spirit inside you is convicting you that you're, you're throwing this life away. And you want to just hand it over, surrender it to God, and let God have the rule and reign of your life, no matter what He says, no matter what He does. Because you can trust Him. However God has spoken to your heart, now is the time to respond. Let's, let's stand and pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for making it not about us, Lord. It's all about you. It's all about your saving work, all about your love, all about your grace, all about what you did. And it's nothing we bring to the table, simply that you just open our eyes that we need to have our faith in you and we need to trust in you. Lord, I thank you. You don't tell us to have everything figured out in our life, or everything cleaned up in our life, or, or, or any other commitments in our life made. We just have to have faith in you and trust in you. Thank you, Lord, that you did all the work that you alone are good and you are good on our behalf and you are righteous on our behalf. Father, forgive us, your children, if we have not been living righteously and we haven't been defining our life as a righteous life, but we've been defining it by other things, whether it's been wealth or, or work or family or hobbies or just extracurricular activities. Lord, let us make you the center of our life this morning, the center of this church's life that you alone would be glorified, you alone would be praised, that everyone would know that Harvest Hill is, is a church that is focused on God's guidance and God's leadership. Thank you for being our shepherd and our overseer. And Father, I pray right now in this place because I know not everyone in this place is right with you. I know there are things we're all struggling with, but I'm praying specifically right now for that individual in this room that has yet to accept you as Lord and Savior. Father, that spiritual wrestling match is going on in their heart about should they come forward, should they step out. And Father, give them the courage. Ask you just to push them out. Don't let them stand still. Father, because you love us. And it's your desire that all would be saved. So Father, it's become this time of invitation, this time of responding to your word. Let us be in this moment doers, and not just hearers. Father, we believe that you are the way and the truth and the life. We thank you for revealing that to us. Thank you for loving us. As we come this time of worship, let us worship you in spirit and truth. Pray this on your son's name. Amen. If God's spoken to your heart, now's the time to respond.